Hi everyone and welcome to the This Week in British History podcast. Before we get started, this is an audio version of the YouTube series This Week in British History, which is available on the British History Tours uh, uh, channel. So just to let you know that if you want to watch so that you also get the visuals, there is a link in the show notes on this podcast, which will give you the link to YouTube. But I've also recorded this, so in a way that I hope you can enjoy it fully also as a podcast. All right, let's get started. Hello and welcome to This Week in British History with me, Philippa Lacey Brule from British History Tours. If you like British history, then you are definitely in the right place. So each week I take you through a roundup of events which happened in the week in history. So this week I'm going to be covering some of the events which happened between the 29th of March and the 5th of April. They include a fair smattering of Tudor things, we have some inventions in here, there's quite a lot in this week, so let's get started. I'm recording this in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, so we are all on lockdown. And so in addition to these weekly videos, I'm also doing uh, currently daily <laughs> virtual tours um, of historical sites and museums, which are obviously closed at the moment, uh, even if we could get out and see them. So that's a mixture of showing you what resources are available to you to virtually explore these places for yourself and other vid uh, videos, um, some of which that I had recorded in, in the past, so actually from those locations. So please do uh, check those out. I'll put a link to the playlist here of virtual tours uh, because you may uh, enjoy those while we're all currently on lockdown. And anyway, regardless, they're a great resource for you if you love British history. So. There's these weekly, there's daily uh, virtual tours, but you can also pop along to my Instagram account, British underscore history underscore tours, um, as well for some daily images and photographs of some of our fantastic historical places. In a previous episode, um, I covered a little bit about Halley's Comet, and it is in this week that is believed to have been the first sighting of Halley's Comet in 240 BC. Obviously at that time it wasn't known as Halley's Comet because it was quite a few years before he was born, quite a few centuries before he was born, and he uh, and obviously we name it after him. So if you want to know more about Halley and his comet, then please do check out this video. On the 1st of April 1918, we have the amalgamation of the Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Navy Air Service to form the Royal Air Force, which is the third of our military um, arms. We have the British Army, the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force now. Incredibly, it was only seven years since in April 1911, the Wright brothers had their first successful flight of a heavier than air aircraft. But of course, we'd had World War One and the innovations which came with that in terms of aircraft and aircraft capability um, were massive. The requirement for an air force was unquestionable. On the 2nd of April 1502, Prince Arthur, Prince of Wales, died at Ludlow Castle. 
Now, Prince Arthur was the eldest son of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York. He was heir to the throne. Prince of Wales is the title given to the heir, of the, uh, heir to the throne in England. And he had been married five months earlier to Catherine of Aragon. Most people nowadays know about Arthur. Uh, his story was kind of squashed underneath the story of his younger brother, Henry VIII. But his death is obviously hugely significant in the fact that we ended up with Henry VIII as king and not Arthur. So Arthur died, um, like I say, 2nd of April, 1502, at Ludlow Castle. And he was there with his new wife, Catherine of Aragon. They had been married about five months. Both of them became extremely ill. Catherine survived, Arthur didn't. And there's a number of uh, conjectures, uh, theories as to his cause of death, um, ranging from consumption, which is tuberculosis, uh, to the plague, to uh, testicular cancer. Obviously, being 500 years hence, we're not ever going to really know the cause of his death, but it was tragic. It was a big blow for the Tudor, Tudor newly established Tudor dynasty. We call it a dynasty, but we were on our first Tudor monarch at this time. Um, it was a blow for the country who were craving stability after the Wars of the Roses had gone on for so long. Uh, it was a personal tragedy, obviously, for Henry VII Elizabeth, and Elizabeth of York. And they're known to have openly wept and had to console each other. Elizabeth reassuring her husband that they could have more children, or notwithstanding the fact that they'd lost a, a, a dear son. But they were left with one son, which was Henry. And in the time that they were in, in terms of the political stability of the country, but also uh, infant mortality, it was worrying if you only had one heir, one son. Uh, obviously, if you were the king, this was even more uh, important. Um, and uh, Elizabeth did fall pregnant again. And I covered her uh, the result of that pregnancy in a previous video, which I'll put the link up to. Uh, up here to um, unfortunately Elizabeth died as a result of the uh, complications of the birth of the subsequent child. As Prince of Wales Arthur was based at Ludlow Castle which is on the border of Wales and England as you can imagine. A, a very uh, tough posting because the uh, the Welsh lords and um, the English uh, ruling um, powers, they, there was obviously conflict there. It was almost like um, a, a, a baptism of fire in terms of how to be a diplomat, how to be, um, how to keep the peace in such a turbulent um, place. When Arthur died, his body was embalmed and his heart was buried in St. Lawrence's Church in Ludlow. He was laid in state until the 23rd of April, after which he, his body was uh, processed down to Worcester Cathedral, where he was buried on the 25th of April. Arthur's tomb at Worcester Cathedral is well worth a visit, and I will show you some pictures of it now. 
you may notice a resemblance between this tomb and the Henry VII chapel which was built onto Westminster Abbey by Henry VII and that is because they follow the same design. Arthur's tomb is absolutely covered in heraldry. It makes for a beautiful tomb to look at but there was obviously messages um, here. You know this was a a royal, he was the Prince of Wales, he was a Tudor um, and this was the rightful, these were the rightful heirs, kings um, of England. There were messages everywhere in Tudor, um, in, in Tudor ceremony, in, 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 in any occasion, whether it be sad or happy, the Tudors used, um, as, as their forebearers did as well, but they used it particularly well, um, heraldry and um, art, and they, they, were, they were very, very good at propaganda I suppose we would call it and Arthur's tomb is propaganda in stone. You have Tudor roses both at Portcullis, the feathers of the Prince of Wales um, amongst lots of other um, badges on there. Now you'll notice um, some damage if you go and visit Arthur's tomb. Now that actually was inflicted um, during the Reformation which happened under Edward VI, so that would be Arthur's nephew. Arthur's tomb was also visited by Elizabeth I, so if you go and see his tomb, you're treading in her footsteps. And what I love um, most out of all the um, flamboyance and elegance of this tomb is actually the step up into it, and I notice um, uh, on Instagram and Facebook, people do take pictures of this step, the dip in this stone step, which is just a direct link to everyone who has ever stepped up into that tomb, and um, the thousands and thousands of feet that have crossed that step, all making their little mark into it. On the 2nd of April 1978, the patent for a innovation in fastenings, <laughs> which we all know, so don't pretend you're not interested, it ran out. Now by this point, this type of fastening was already known by its brand name, Velcro. And hold on to the end of this segment to find out where the word Velcro actually comes from. Velcro basically works by imitating nature. You know, the, um, the, the seed burrs that get stuck on the dog's fur when you're out for a walk. Well, they were noticed by a Swiss inventor called George de Mestrel. I hope I've pronounced that right. He took a burr and looked at it underneath a microscope and realised that the fastenings, the, the, the way it fastened onto the dog's fur was by a series of tiny, tiny little hooks. Along with some friends who were from the weaving industry, they managed to duplicate this um, occurrence in nature as a fabric. And as promised, the word Velcro, it comes from two French words, the word for velvet, velour, and hook, crochet, Velcro. On the 3rd of April 1721, Sir Robert Walpole became 
what we now term the Prime Minister, although at the time that wasn't a, a term that was used. And the reason this story is interesting, or at least interesting to me, is that he is the link to 10, number 10 Downing Street being the residence of our Prime Minister. Good evening, everybody. So you join me at um, Horse Guards Parade Ground uh, off Whitehall. Um, now, it is going dusk here, but if you can see to the right of uh, the building with all the scaffolding on, that's the back of Downing Street. And I find it curious that the Prime Minister of, um, of our country lives on, effectively, on a side street, Downing Street. I thought it might be uh, of interest to you to find out a little bit more about Downing Street. Downing Street, so that area that we're looking at over there, uh, was Crown land. And on the restoration of Charles II, there was a guy called George Downing. Now, he'd been on the parliamentarian side, but he simply changed sides, like, like many people did manage to do, actually. And, um, and he persuaded Charles II to rent him the land there on Downing Street. Downing built 15 townhouses on that boggy waterlogged ground over there and he built these 15 townhouses with no foundations, <laughs> uh, sat back and enjoyed the rent from them. So not the you know not the most uh, scrupulous man history has ever known um, but anyway so it's his name that gives uh, that, that is given to to the street. Um, so the, but the land remained in crown hands and under George II, uh, so it was 1732, George II, he wanted to gift Downing Street, or at least 10 Downing Street. Um, I'm not sure what happened to the rest of the street actually, but he wanted to gift Downing Street to, 10 Downing Street to his first Lord of the Treasury, uh, a, a guy called Robert Walpole. Robert Walpole said, Okay, I'll accept, but on two conditions. One, that I accept it on behalf of the nation, not as a personal gain. And two, that I'm allowed to make it bigger. <laughs> so, one thing for him, one thing for the nation. That's fair enough, isn't it? So, he was first Lord of the Treasury. We didn't have Prime Minister. Prime Minister wasn't a term that we used at the time. Um, and the, the, which is why the letterbox on 10 Downing Street says first Lord of the Treasury. Um, and still still does to this day. Um, so he uh, so he had the, the building was the, the house was enlarged backwards, which is why it comes quite a long way back onto here. Um, and he could have had a, a much grander entrance onto Downing Street in where I'm stood now on Horse Guards Parade. But he decided that he would prefer a more discreet entrance off Downing Street, which is why we still have that um, that entrance now which with the amount of security that's required these days perhaps um, has ended up being the best best thing um, so that is why Downing Street where our Prime Minister lives on Downing Street uh, or effectively on a side street in London and another story relating to a British Prime Minister Sir Winston Churchill resigned for the final time as British Prime Minister on the 5th of April 1955 and in the show notes I've put a link to a showreel of that story. On the 4th of April 1581 the rather controversial figure of Francis Drake became Sir Francis Drake having been knighted by Queen Elizabeth I aboard his ship the Golden Hind while it was docked at Deptford. Drake was a controversial figure. Yes he was a 
an explorer, a navigator, a competent sailor, but he was also could be described as a privateer. Um, he profited from um, from his explorations personally. He was uh, he dealt with sl in slaves, but Elizabeth was grateful to him because he was the bugbear of the Spanish. He really was getting under their skin. He was taking their treasure. He was taking their ships and causing them a headache. And in Elizabeth's uh, eyes, that was always going to be a good thing. Thank you for watching this episode of This Week in British History. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope it's been a nice diversion from the events that are happening in the world right now. It's a bit of fun and um, hopefully informative as well and that you have enjoyed it. If you are well, stay well. If you are poorly at the moment, then my best wishes to you for a speedy recovery and I will see you all next week. Bye.